Welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast, a podcast for farmers and ranchers ready to shift for a stronger future. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful are not. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, you'll hear how producers of all sizes and practices are moving mountains for things they believe in, all in the name of an industry that keeps growing and innovating for a stronger food system and stronger farm families. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to discuss where producers are finding success, challenging the status quo, striving for better, and keeping our heritage alive, all while producing the food we depend on. This podcast is brought to you by Back Pocket Social Marketing. And yes, this is Lexi here. This podcast has been a real passion project for me. All the time that goes into interviewing guests, editing, and producing the show is sponsored by my freelance marketing agency. We specialize in website design, social media advertising, content creation and management, and email marketing. If you like to take a foundational approach to your marketing and figure out exactly what's working for you and what's not, and really focus on efficiency, then you would be a great candidate to work with us. You can reach out and talk with us more at Lexi at BackPocketSocial.com. We would love to help you solve your marketing challenges. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. I am so excited today to have Tiffany Baxter of Backyard Butchery here with me today. And Tiffany started a farm in 2014 that was more focused on beekeeping, um, pollinating pollinators and doing bee removal and then selling chicken and turkey that she was raising and expanded that into backyard butchery in 2022 um and that has been a lot more focused on doing fully mobile processing for beef pork lamb and goats and you are based in oklahoma it sounds like you travel a fair amount though so excited to hear more about that and how you got started so Fill in some of the gaps. Uh, that's a very brief introduction to a long journey, I'm sure it feels like. Fill in the gaps for us. Tell us what you're up to now and how things are going. Yeah, so um, it's it's been a very long journey. I bought a piece of property um, when I was 23 with just a few acres on it. Um, and that's kind of when I started getting into the beekeeping. And I immediately um, wanted to learn from people who knew more about it than I did. So I started working commercially across the country um, just as hired labor, essentially, on the East Coast, um, in North Dakota. I've kind of done everything from like on the, on the beekeeping side, harvesting semi-loads of honey and breeding queens and pollinating and all the things. And that was really, really fun. But here in Oklahoma, I can't really do any of that. Um, I'm stuck with really just some, you know, a small amount of hives. And then I do the local bee removals. Um, I don't kill the bees. They get relocated safely. That's where all of my stock comes from. And then from there, they get put on several different farms that they're, they're doing some work pollinating for those farmers. Um, and I still do that today. Um, but it originally started really with poultry. I was pushing out like a hundred head every few weeks during the main season. And then, I don't know, anywhere from 50 to my biggest fear was like 285 turkeys for Thanksgiving turkey or Thanksgiving dinners, um, which 
I loved doing and I am going to get back into turkey at some point. I've just been fighting around with heritage breeds. They like to die <laughs> before I get to butcher them, which has been a problem. Um, but I was into poultry for a long time. And then I think it was 2017, 2018 in there, um, whenever I completely stopped doing the poultry meat production and that actually happened. There's a little drama behind that. That actually happened because a local shop opened here and wanted to monopolize the market and shut a bunch of us down that were processing poultry for other people as well. So I ended up kind of using that as inspiration for what is now backyard butchery because I figured if you can't beat them, uh, join them. And so the original concept was actually a mobile poultry processing unit. The problem is the numbers aren't there. Like the, the demand's not there. The money's not there to support it. So then that turned into, well, let's see about, you know, I was doing my own pigs at the time. I was like, let's see what maybe doing some small ruminants looks like. Well, if I'm going to make it heavy enough to lift a 600 pound pig, I'm going to do a 600 pound steer. And then, so it just kind of snowballed into what is now the first and only mobile butcher shop, fully mobile. So I kill, cut and package your animal in the same day on your property. Um, and I've been doing that since April last year, you know, and it's been, it's been a journey. It sounds like it. That is so many questions pop up from that. Um, so first off, you go from bees and pro well, you said you technically first started with the poultry. So you went from um, poultry and bees and then expanded very quickly into small ruminants. Um, a couple of questions on the poultry side of things. I know each state has their own regulations about butchering at your home place and then what you can sell or how you can sell it. What does that look like for in Oklahoma? Was that any kind of a challenge to you at that point in time? Yeah. So Oklahoma has the most difficult, um, the strictest poultry laws in the country. Oh, wow. And most people don't know that. Um, there are, I believe it's seven. We'll have to like fact check that later but there i think it's seven um usda poultry exemptions and oklahoma only recognizes one and then they even scrutinized it further so like we only have the 1000 bird exemption here in oklahoma you can raise a thousand birds um in a year turkeys count as two which is stupid, but I digress. Um, and you can raise, butcher, and sell them from your property. But that's how it has to be done. It has to be sold from your farm. They have to physically come to your farm. And that was um, definitely hard to get people to drive, you know, all the way out here just to pick up some chicken. Um, another issue is this was also, you know, you got to think back. This was years ago before COVID, pre-COVID. I feel like there's pre-COVID and post-COVID. Uh, <laughs> Pre-COVID, trying to sell a $20 chicken or a $25 chicken, um, which was actually a pretty good price point for what I had in them. Unfortunately, people did not want to spend that. So it was really difficult to move those. Thanksgiving turkeys, 
Thanksgiving turkeys sold out every year. I think people are more apt to spend a large amount of money or a larger amount of money on something they're buying once a year. It's a special occasion, um, but something they're eating three, four times, you know, three, four, five times a week. They don't want to spend that extra money. They want their $5 Costco chicken. Um, and a, a little part of me can't blame you know, families that are struggling, like you can't blame them for not being able to do that. Um, so you really have a small customer base for that. Um, as far as the laws go, it's very great. So the law states that I can butcher um, your chicken for free, but I can't charge you for it. So <laughs> essentially I will do like poultry processing classes, or if you have at least, you know, 40 birds, I'll still do it. Um, but I'm not charging you to butcher. I'm charging you for the bag. I put them in mm -hmm. and it's asinine to do that because it's like, what's the difference? Um, but like I said, there was a, a shop that went up and made a problem for everybody. And that's, you know, part of farming that I've spoken a lot about because I get frustrated at the gatekeeping and, um, the competition, the cutthroat competition attitude. Like we get further together than we'll ever get fighting. Um, you're just making it harder for everybody else, but yeah, that's, that's definitely been an issue. We did try to change the laws, but you know, Oklahoma, just like Kansas, you know, you're right here in the Midwest where big poultry, I'm talking like Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride, you know, they have a chokehold on our government. And so like when I talk to butchers on the East coast where they say they have custom exempt shops that require no inspections, I like, I dream of that because here in Oklahoma, like you can't do anything um, because we are like a large ag state, which means it protects the big farmers, the corporate farmers, it doesn't protect us small people. It makes it harder for us. So even though like we have more customer base, as far as a butcher shop goes, we have way more regulation. It is a lot of regulatory hoops to jump through. And I want to make clear, I think most people that listen to this understand what we're talking about, but for some who might not, it's not that we don't want to follow the rules. It's not that we think the rules shouldn't exist. It's just that there is a price to following the rules the way that they are lined out right now that is against good business. We would not be able to make a profit if we had to pay those regulatory to get those certifications at the point that we are doing or the scale that we are doing things. So for you guys, you have a thousand bird exemption that is further scrutinized. And then anything over that, you have to pay to be a certified facility and follow all of these regulations of things like lights that can't be over sinks and sinks have to be nine inches by 14 inches and all these kinds of things that are just like, okay, if I'm not designing a whole processing facility, I'm never going to be able to do this. Well, essentially, like all we were trying to do, legally speaking, like we were trying to get the law changed so that we could sell the poultry at a farmer's market. That's all I asked for. That's all we wanted. Um, because I mean, in other states have there's like all those other exemptions. They have 10,000 bird exemptions. They have um, unlimited they, they can butcher as many poultry as they want. Um, there's all these different exemptions we just don't have access to, which is silly because USDA should be federal, right? Um, 
but we were just trying to get it where we could sell poultry at the farmer's market. It really, really hinders our farmer's markets um, not being able to sell anything that's not USDA. Um, you know, and if I can sell it from my farm, why can't I sell it from the farmer's market? The farmer's market in legal terms is supposed to be an extension of your farm. Mm-hmm. So how does how does that work? You know, if that's all we ask for, it's not that we wanted to bend the rules or do anything, in, you know, improperly or you know orders we just want more options to get our products to the city people essentially yeah that and it really is preventative of building sustainable communities in my opinion when you prevent the product that is grown here from being sold to the people in your area they have no other option but to choose whatever food is trucked in to the grocery store or to the Costco or whatever. So it's it's a, a very interesting thing that we have to deal with. And it's one of those things that it's like, it's not just the production. It's not just the regulation. It's also the fact that we have these things in place that prevent us from even making the sale that we should be able to make. Right. I mean, but if you think about it, like who has those legislators in their back pocket? Like who has millions in, um, you know, making sure that those laws keep a chokehold on small farmers? Because the only person profiting from you going to the grocery store, again, it's the big corporate farming community. And um, I think most small farmers would agree, like we don't all... um, agree with their practices. We don't agree with what they're doing. There's a reason that their chicken is 99 cents a pound. And my chicken was, you know, at the time, I think 350 a pound. There's a reason. Yeah. There's a reason. And it's also just like diversity is okay. We don't all have to do the same thing. And that's apparently not the approach we take. But what? I digress. Okay, so that's the poultry story. Um, I used to work for the state of Kansas, and we would work with a lot of food processors who were trying to get started. And just listening to the regulations for poultry specifically, it's like, what is happening? Who wrote these? And like, <laughs> what kind of or how like how long have these even been in place? The way that they're written, they sound like they were written a hundred years ago and never once updated or changed. <laughs> That's probably right. They probably haven't been. Yeah. Honestly, I think Kansas has, and you guys might have it too, like the under the tree law or exemption. And it sounds similar to what you guys have in Oklahoma, where if someone comes out to your farm to purchase it, you can do up to a certain number of birds that you processed or butchered under that tree in my backyard. And as long as they can see the location where they were butchered, then they can buy it from you. Yeah, that's a new one. I haven't heard yeah. the tree. It's uh yeah, it's it's actually like in the regulations under the tree. I'm like, wow, what is this? <laughs> yeah. How very official of them. So very official. But I'm sure my um fellow uh Department of Ag employees are just cringing like, yeah, let's not talk about that. But um <laughs> it's it's something that I think it needs to be addressed. It's it's causing a lot of folks who would like to be able to feed their communities and grow local businesses to not be able to for no reason other than a, a regulation that drastically needs updated. 
Yeah, the only solution I really see to any of that is small farmers coming together as a cooperative and fighting it together, you know, with unfortunately, like when we were looking at it, you're you're gonna have to hire a lobbyist, you're gonna hire, you're gonna have to do all those things and that costs money. Um, and it costs a lot of money because I assure you the Tyson lobbyists, the Pilgrim's Pride lobbyists have way deeper pockets than we do. And that's kind of what has always happened. That's how every bill that we have tried to introduce has gotten squashed. You know, it'll get so far. And then right at the very end, they make sure it doesn't pass through. Um, and it's been, that's, it's really frustrating, but, um, you know, most small farmers are barely getting by right now, especially after last year. I don't know if you in Kansas were affected as badly as we were with the drought and the hay shortages. Um, Oklahoma sold the most cattle in the whole country. We sold 600,000 head last year. It was twofold than any other country or any other state. And, um, you know, it's been pretty devastating here. You know, these farmers are just, I go to farms every single day. I talk to them every single day and it's kind of the same old tune that we're all just barely getting by. So the reality is like, how could we fight it? Yeah. It's gotta be an industry-wide shift. Like there's just, it's gotta head that way eventually. Um, Support it to make it happen. Yeah. Um, tell me more about the starting of the mobile butchering. So you had great inspiration since you were being forced out on the poultry side of things by this other local place. So that inspired you to do this mobile thing, which is not very common. The regulations around mobile butchering are also very challenging, at least in Kansas they are. Um, so how, what's that process look like? Tell us about your, your trailer that you designed. How'd all that go? Yeah. So originally when this all happened, I started reaching out to the Department of Ag here locally and they actually originally shot down the concept immediately. Um, It wasn't until COVID um, that they changed their minds. Um, There were different people in that office in, you know, during COVID. So that might have been part of it. Um, And that's actually why I went ahead and was like, let's see if maybe maybe this guy has a different take on it. And, um, you know, most butcher shops here were literally booked out two years in advance. It was crazy. Like you're making appointments for animals that aren't even born yet. How is that? So they were desperate, you know, and originally they only wanted to let me do small ruminants. And and that was exactly a conversation. Like I said, I told them if I'm doing 600 pound pigs, I'm doing 600 pound steers. And I always laugh when I tell that story because the first thing the inspector told me was, you'll never do a 600 pound pig. I've done a thousand five pound pig. I've done at least 10 or 11, 600 plus at this point, just breeders that, you know, these are the pigs that literally people can't get loaded and take mm-hmm. to a butcher shop because they're so big. I've got flies in here. <laughs> it's we all so, do this time of year. I know it's embarrassing. Um, But yeah, so building the trailer was a year and seven month situation. And I probably never would have done it if it weren't for COVID pushing me also out of restaurants. So I was in restaurants 16 years, the last 12 years in bartending. And I bartended um, the first few months I opened Backyard Butchery. Actually, I didn't get to quit until August last year. But um, yeah, it was a year and seven month process. It was just intense research, which I do love doing. Um, but since there 
were no other mobile shops around. And there were only like two actively in the state of Texas that I could compare to. Um, You know, I was kind of just going off of what I knew I would need after spending some time in a butcher shop and and butchering my own animals. Um, And then just, like I said, just massive, massive research. How can I do this mobily? Um, it was, it was a lot. I had to hire engineers. I had to do, I have a lot in just the design of it. And a lot of people keep asking me to give them my design. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not ready to just give it away yet. I'm not ready to just video it and tell everybody exactly how it's done. Um, I did look into patenting and, and, you know, I'm looking into franchising it and a couple other options. I have no idea what that's going to look like in the future just yet. Right now, I'm still just focused on the one. And it took probably the first year of just running it to even get all the little kinks, all the little flaws. Because again, when you're doing something you've never done before, because also keep in mind, I only had hot cut my own animals. When I worked in a shop, it was frozen. So I had never done a full beef hot cut until my first day on my trailer. You know, I'm literally learning as I go. And you have to be really brave to just be like, you know what? I'm going to take a 1200 pound animal and break it down by the end of the day. And it's a lot harder than people think. Like butchering is already hard enough. Um, It's a hard enough job frozen. And then to try, I literally took a hard job, made it harder. Um, (laughs) It's probably... We could probably dissect my personality in that last <laughs> Um, but uh, it's been amazing though. I think now I'm finally at a point where it's like, we've got most of the kinks out and I'm, I'm getting to, you know, really fine tune a lot of things and my own skills have grown immensely. I have come up with my own technique of butchering. Um, I don't know how much you know about butchering, but I've kind of, most shops are what we call like a box cutter. I've turned more into a seam cutter at this point. I'm pulling like actual full muscles out at one time and then cutting them from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it fills so many needs that I didn't even know we needed. Um, I didn't know that we really had that many injuries. Like the word isn't even completely out about backyard butchery. I just listed it on Google. Um, it's been all word of mouth, social media. And well, now that we're getting, you know, getting some attention, I mean, every full moon, I'm getting like a dozen calls Hmm. from broken legs, you know, and then calving season, there will be inevitably people will be calling with labor's gone wrong um, and all the silly stuff in between that happens, you know, Um, aggressive animals, animals that are unloadable, animals that, you know, are problematic. They keep jumping fences. They can't catch them. They call me (laughs) for those animals, legally speaking. If they can't get it to a butcher shop, if it doesn't walk across the kill floor, they can't butcher it here. So I kind of have that niche market. I knew it would be a niche market. I didn't know it'd be this big of a niche market. So I actually had to completely change the way I scheduled after the first three months of being open. I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. I have to leave open date, which is really scary as a, as a business owner, because you're like, I'm just leaving it up to the universe to fill this appointment Mm -hmm. and I just have to kind of 
um, trust that, you know, someone's going to call and they're going to need that appointment because the worst thing is when they do call and you don't have it. Mm -hmm. A full day for every appointment, whether it's one pig or one lamb or, you know, two cows, I'm going to block a full day for you. Um, And that's really for biosecurity reasons, if nothing else, you know, I'm washing it out after every job. I'm not going to go to a second farm after that. Um, plus it would be really difficult to schedule a time frame like, Hey, I'll be there whenever we're done. And that's going to be, um, people unfortunately don't know what their animals weigh most of the time. (laughs) Like that thousand five pound boar was supposed to be like a 500 pound or 600 pound pig. Yeah. And she had two of them. Yeah. I had scheduled one day to do two pigs. And then I, when I got there, I looked at him and I said, ma'am, um, what are you doing tomorrow? I think I'm going to come back to work. I think we're going to drop the trailer tonight and then I'm just going to come back for the second one because it was like 800 pounds. I can only imagine that like that's just such an immense task. So are you starting like really early in the mornings when you're doing this or how long does it take you to now that you're how long did it take you before? How long does it take you now? <laughs> Maybe is a better question. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, when I first started, I think it took me almost a full day just to do one pig because I didn't, I I needed to kind of find my way, find my techniques. Um, but I got over that really quickly, especially with pork. Pork comes really easily to me. It was the beef that was more frustrating. Um, and a lot of that was equipment. You know, I don't have the right, I wasn't, I had to kind of, navigate through equipment and the equipment was slowing me down. And then I also had to learn how to, okay, I'm vacuum sealing as I go and grinding as I go. Um, when I first started, I was treating it the way I was taught in a butcher shop. That's how we did. But that was also with a team of like three or four people, um, and cutting frozen beef. And so it's go- I'm going, okay, it's just me. Um, I'm going to grind as I go. I'm going to package as I go. And that really has sped me up a lot. I think there were the longest I took, I think, I've left a couple farms at like two in the morning. Um, that's happened a few times and I'm not proud of it, but at the end of the day, like I got the job done. We got it done within USDA standards, which is 24 hours um, from time of slaughter. And so, you know, and in those cases, usually the, my client's coming out to the trailer every hour or two after a certain point and they're taking meat in, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to take that long. I will literally just ask them, Hey, why don't you go ahead and start taking some of this in as we go? You can take a quarter in at a time. Um, and that way it starts cooling down before we just keep stacking in more meat. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've got it down. A pig is about a three hour process, um, start to finish, which is pretty good. I think I do take my time. Um, I know I could be faster. I know I could hurry, but I'm not that girl. I became self, you know, employed so that I didn't have to rush. (laughs) Um, Great mindset to tackle it with. That takes some self-reflection to get there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's also just safety. You know, it's a very dangerous job. People have no idea. And if you hurry, that's how you make mistakes. That's how you hurt yourself. Um, Like I did slice my wrist open pretty badly. I got very lucky that a tendon or an artery was missed (laughs) and, or I should say, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty scary. I don't know if you see that kind of a glare, but it is pretty deep. We saw, got to see the insides of my, my wrist. That's fine. Super fun. Um, but yeah, and a cow is, it varies just like I could do a mini in three hours. Um, 
If it's bigger, it might be six. I think average is probably six hours. If it's like a giant 2,500 pound bull, I'm going to be there till probably eight, nine o'clock. I don't start super early because I have my own farm to take care of before I leave. So I do get up super early, um, but... I do want to see my animals in the daylight before I leave. And that's a thing for me. I mean, unless I'm driving two or three hours, I'm not going to leave until at least the sun is up and I've seen everybody in the daylight. Um, because I know that there's a good chance I'm not going to be home for 10 or 12 hours. So I don't want to leave an animal or the fence. If the, I'm always checking fence, you know, I don't want to leave fence down. I don't want to leave an animal in a bad situation. I'm going to make sure that's all taken care of before I get in that trailer. Also, the trailer requires a daily preparation. Like I've got a hundred gallon tank. I got to fill. I've got to make sure the tires are all aired up. I've got to go fill up the gas tank, fill up the generator tank, fill up. I got like three, four different things I got to fill with gas and diesel, you know, before we can go where. Um, so I usually start between eight and nine in the morning and then Ideally, you know, like I said, six hours on cattle, but it's if it takes eight, nine, 10 hours, that's not abnormal. It just depends on how big the animal is and how they want it cut and and how quickly we can get things done. Because sometimes I go there, the animal's not caught. Um, Sometimes I have to, you know, get creative. (laughs) And, you know, also there's washing it out at the end of the day. It does take me 45 minutes to an hour almost every day washing it out. Um, I am going to upgrade my power washer to like a steam power washer. I think that'll, mm-hmm. that'll speed things up. But um, as we all know, you know, things cost money. So I'll get there. I have some things I want to upgrade that will speed this whole process up entirely. But um, processing equipment, just like farming equipment, is outrageously expensive. Like... um I need about six figures just for like four items to upgrade my grinder, my bandsaw, vacuum sealer, and a generator and a power washer. That's a hundred grand. That's five things. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily improve the bottom line. Yeah. Right. And just, just to go up a little bit, you know, just yeah. to save a little bit of time. It's like, okay, well, we're just going to slowly, we'll slowly do it. <laughs> yeah. That's about the only way you can, but that's, it's so impressive to me to think about just your day to day of showing up at a situation you have no idea what you're walking into a lot of the time, I'm guessing. And then I mean to. That's the other yeah. thing. My rig's 52 foot. Mm. I get into some tight spaces. I would imagine. And a lot of the folks, you know, there's a some of the reason that they are not br- able to bring these animals in is not always necessarily because of the animals i would imagine sometimes it's because of the facilities that are available to them as well which i'm sure is challenging for you too right yeah there's there's a a hundred reasons why people call me um but probably one of the biggest ones is really just that they don't trust butchers anymore really Uh, and it makes me really sad yeah i mean but how often do you hear like did i get my animal back Right. Well, I don't think I got all of my animal back from my butcher. And so that distrust, um, I've, I mean, shamelessly been profiting off of their distrust on other butchers because my process is transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see the cleanliness of the shop. You can see me washing it out. I, I wash it out at their farm. I leave all of that on their property. Um, 
And essentially, like you, you can watch the whole process if you want, if you don't trust me. Uh, but most people, you know, they'll let me do my thing and they get all their meat back. And I started posting yield numbers on Facebook, which I don't know that any butcher has ever done um, to give people realistic expectations of, you know, and so they can see the variance, you know, meeting and your feeding program are going to be huge. Um, when it comes to your yield numbers, you know, I'll post what that animal weighed live, what it weighed hanging weight. So after the skin, the head and the guts are out, and then I'll post the number of how many pounds of meat is going in their freezer, literally. Um, and I've been putting those percentages up on Facebook. I need to get back into that because that was Um, really a fun, it's been a really fun experiment for me that I personally was doing just to see which animals were producing, um, you know, the most amount of meat for smallest amount of time and, and just comparing feed programs. Cause I, I'll ask them, you know, what, how are you feeding it? And I get to see the facilities. I see what they're, what they're living in, if they're on grass, if they're on dirt, if they have, you know, structures. So it's been a really fun experiment for me as a butcher, um, learning more. I'm learning more butchering than I ever could have any other way. Like to, I can take that and apply that to my own animals, to my own farm. And that's really kind of a fun thing because everything I do kind of works um, together somehow. Yeah. You get to see it all the way through the process. And that's so interesting. I find that very fascinating just to look at those different numbers and try to figure out like how that's associated with the way that the animal was raised. Is that um, something that you feel like you have insight to? Like what's, what are some of the things that you've noticed or are there any trends of like, these are animals that butchered much better or had, you know, better meat based on your insight? Yeah. So um, pork varies so, so, so much, like specifically talking about pork, um, you know, there are certain breeds I could get into, we could get really nerdy into this. I don't know how, how much time you want to spend on pigs, uh, but you know, things like Maitian pigs started getting a little popular, um, worst yields I've ever seen. I'm sure they tasted great. They looked wonderful. Um, but again, like horrible yield numbers to the point where I literally came home and checked my scales that day that I got to do pure vets. Wow. Uh, but they otherwise looked amazing, you know, and then there were like mangalitsas were really, really popular for a while. Well, then I started noticing Bortaint was higher in mangalitsas than any other breed. And I think, and this is just complete opinion, just putting this out here. Um, mangalitsas to me are the closest domestic breed to like a wild Mm -hmm. wild pig Um, and their fat content is great they look amazing the cuts come out great they do occasionally get marbled um, but it's really they're an aggressive breed they do a lot of fighting everybody that I've butchered for has issues keeping them fenced Um, and like I said the boar taint to me was the they were the smelliest breed that I've run into Um, you know and then you get into like oh well people that buy show pigs well, I found out that they taste terrible. Um, I think it's the show feed. Um, anybody that is buying a show pig to butcher, I would highly, highly, highly recommend giving it 60 to 90 days, not 30, 
60 to 90 days of finishing, get you like a 14%, you know, low protein, high fat diet. Cause that's the other thing is they're extremely lean. So then people are getting sausage back. That's like 90, 10 and doesn't taste like sausage because sausage is only sausage. If it's like 30% fat content. Right. So, um, I, those are a couple things on the pig side, on the cattle side. Um, I can't say a lot about yields. I'd say, you know, that's all going to be pretty basic as far as like what to me, like a 1200 pound cow is, is my ideal weight. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, anything kind of over 1500 gets a little ridiculous. Um, but there are so many people doing small breed cattle, small breed cattle, they all have their pros and cons, you know, but as far as looking at meat quality, I'm going towards, um, more of those commercial Charlay, um, and I hate to say Angus, but Angus, you know, I, I personally raise short horns. Um, I haven't measured any of them yet. I'll let you know how that goes. Um, I prefer a grass fed, obviously if you grain finisher, if you don't, that's up to you. Um, I don't like seeing any animal fed straight corn. All it's going to do is add in a bunch of really crappy fat, like not good quality fat. We're talking like five poof of <laughs> fat, you know, um, you, it's not something I, I've talked about it. It's very controversial. People get really upset when I say that because a lot of people love to finish, you know, their pigs for several months on corn or they're even some old school farmers out here finishing their cattle that way. You know, essentially, like I said, it's a low quality fat. Um, it's never it's never high quality fat. It's really just adding fat on the outside. You're not getting that marbling. That marbling takes time. You know, you're not going to get it doing corn is kind of quick and dirty fat is how I look at it. It is the cheapest feed. And I know people require, you know, a lot of people have to have that. They need a cheap feed because that's all they can afford. Um, but use it as a filler. You know, I don't like seeing it um, otherwise. And I also see that it like blows up the intestines. It discolors the intestines. They're they're very inflamed and they smell really bad. Uh, and to me, that also ri- raises your risk of more taint, in my opinion. It'll make that stronger um, from a low quality diet. So um, obviously just, I think one of the bigger things I've also noticed is how ha- animals having structures do so much better, mm-hmm. um, just in general, health wise all around, if they have access to, you know, a shed or some sort of covered structure, partially covered structure, um, Oklahoma weather is kind of extreme, extremely hot. And then we get what feels extremely cold, even though I know it's probably not to some people, but we get these ice storms, you know, we get these really nasty um, ice storms usually a couple times a year. And um, I will say the yields seem to be higher on what we also, we all know as happy animals, right? The happier your animal is, the more comfortable they are, um, the more safe they feel. It It's gonna affect the quality of your carcass every time. Yeah. It's so fascinating to hear like different opinions because there are so many different ways out there to raise animals and everybody does it just a little bit different. So it's so interesting where you see a higher number at that harvest point 
to know like just kind of what you're seeing and what's what's standing out to you. Yeah. And we could probably do an entire podcast on differences in show animals versus commercial animals <laughs> and the trends that happen there. It's such a such an interesting topic to get into. <laughs> there are so many trends. I I just dabble in um show cattle. I just got my herd a year ago and um I haven't had any of them shown. They're all being treated as beef, you know, beef cattle for me. Uh, I'd like to have a couple of kids show. It's really a fun thing. I think I'm healing my inner teenager a little bit. Um, so it's it's as much for me as it is for whatever kids that are going to show for me. I have one for sure going to show for me and I'm looking for one more. Because um, when I was in FFA, I didn't have we didn't have a farm. My family hated that I was into farming. They despised it. And up until, you know, my twenties and I actually quit, quit communicating with all of them, um, as a result or partial result of that. Um, so I was relying on my money that I made like a scoop of ice cream, you know, and babysitting as a kid to pay for show pigs. And then I wanted to get in show cattle so, so bad, but, um, I couldn't afford a show cow. I mean, my gosh, even today they still go 20 grand. Like, are you kidding for a project for a steer that you can't even like breed? Yeah. Blows my mind. So I actually, my ag teacher at the time, he's like, I know someone that has some cattle to let you show, you know, you just pay for the feed at while you show it, you pay for your show entries and I can handle that. So I wanted kind of re-gift that to anyone I can here locally. Um, but I'm finding out that kids don't really want to show cows so much anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, that's really cool, though, that you had that opportunity um, available to you. Because, yes, um, for a family or a person who is not born into that, it's almost impossible to get into. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that of how you've been starting your own operation with your animals and how that's been going, how you got started there, because it is incredibly challenging. We talked about processing equipment costing a lot. It's exactly the same in production. So what's that been like getting into that basically from ground zero? Yeah. So it's not just, I mean, there's a learning curve for sure. Um, and thank goodness for like social media and Google, you know, for that. Um, so I only have a little under three acres here on this property. Um, and I tell people all the time, like you would be shocked what you can do with under five acres. Like you can make it happen. Um, I'm living proof, I promise. So I mostly run for my small ruminants here. My cattle are on a lease property just to preface that. Um, Obviously, 10 cows do not fit on three acres, but I use Premier One fencing. It's a love-hate relationship at this point, but it's kind of the only way for me to sustainably do what I want to do, which is rotational grazing on my tiny little property. Um, I've got, you know, eight mini goats, the Nigerians that I run, and they they eat down the leafy stuff, and then they eat down the poisonous stuff and the blackberry thickets. I don't know how they are up there for you, but they're like weeds here. Um, and you will tear yourself apart trying to take them down. So I have the goats and then I've got right now I've got nine pigs. I raise, um, Gloucestershire old spots and 
I run the goats first in a pasture and then I run the pigs behind them and then I run the poultry behind them because poultry, FYI, specifically ducks, like to eat pig poo. Um, and I've learned that. So, but the learning process, I have to tell you, it has sucked. I mean, it sucked with the trailer. It sucked in farming because nobody wants to say this out loud, but it's a life or death lesson. Like you're learning because the ultimate, I mean, the ultimate fails, it died. And that's, I've had a lot of death. You know, I live in a flood zone. I had 300 birds drown. Yeah. You know, I had to call a girlfriend up and I said, Hey, don't feed your pigs today because I'm coming over. And I lost 140 birds to three dogs that the neighbors have up the road, um, which he incredibly never did fence up. And I ended up having to do what I had to do to deal with that. I've shot six different dogs off this property. I do not enjoy shooting your dog. Um, it is a whole process that has been, you know, you think about, oh, predators. No, it's not wild stuff. It's people's dogs that get loose and they want to come over and they've chewed through electric net fencing. They have dug under coops. Um, they have jumped on top of like, I originally started with Salatin style coops. Mm. The dogs would jump on top of them and break stuff or they would break it just enough. They would like dig under one side of the coop and, and get a little bit of a hole on, you know, where the birds could get out, the dogs couldn't get in, but then they'd jump on top of it and run the birds out. Mm -hmm. They were so, 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 so smart. And it's like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Right. I've got cameras everywhere. And again, I'm always working. So it's not like I'm here all the time to deal with things like that. Um, but inevitably that was the biggest, um, issue was, was dogs. And then I had a little bobcat problem. Guess what? You can trap bobcats. Not that hard. Found out I could do that. Um, you know, again, obviously I've had some legal stuff I've got after nine years, I do have a neighbor that is, he and I are in litigation now because he doesn't like what I'm doing. Um, kind of lines up with backyard butchery. So I'm not sure if it was the butcher shop or the farm, whichever came first that he doesn't like. Um, so I'll be moving, unfortunately, because of that. You have to really, and I run into that a lot when I go to farms. I get a lot of butcher dates because people, you know, either have HOAs or covenants they don't know about, or, you know, neighbors are complaining and it's just becoming a problem. Um, you know, be very, very wary where you start your farm. Um, that's my biggest advice, you know, the fencing because of what this is, you know, I've never wanted to put permanent fencing up and it wouldn't work for rotational grazing. Um, and I originally started with, you know, basically all the commercial stuff. I started with like Cornish cross chickens. Wolf won't do that. That was gross. Um, they don't forage, they get they're so unhealthy and you see it up up close and personal when you raise a batch of those chickens. Now I understand, I understand people wanting to raise them and I understand why they want to raise them because again, it comes down to like cost efficiency. Um, but for me, it did, you know, that basically defies the whole purpose for me. I'm trying to do better than what I get at the grocery store. And I can't do that if I'm raising the same Cornish cross cross chicken that should not ever exist anyway. Um, I'm looking, so I had started from that and then I slowly started getting into like more sustainable stuff, heritage breeds, hatching out my own stuff. I've got two GQF incubators I invested in. Um, 
to make myself more sustainable. Because also like, if you're not sustainable, if you're relying on a hybrid bird that you have to buy from a hatchery, you increase your risk of um, all these different diseases and things that you're going to bring onto your property. And that was ultimately like what got me part of what also got me out of poultry to begin with is the last batch of turkeys I had, I think I lost over half of them to some kind of a neurological issue that they were having straight out of the hatchery. Mm. He said, well, you know, the hatchery had no idea what's going on and they can't replace a hundred birds overnight. You know, that's a 28 dating, 28 day incubation period. And then if, if it's another month before they get them to you, well, okay, well now they're not going to be big enough for Thanksgiving. Um, now we're selling like a 10 pound Thanksgiving Turkey, which some people like, but most people don't. Um, but yeah, there were, I mean, a hundred different obstacles, um, legally speaking, the main thing was just with the poultry. Um, other than that, you know, um, rotational grazing is in my opinion, the only way to do it. If you can right now, I have everybody running together happily, um, because I haven't had time to move them. That's yeah. It, um, but I knew I wasn't able to rotate them for a month or so. So I was like, I'm just going to throw everybody together and give them all three acres. And so that's kind of what's happening right now. But it is still working really, really well. I just have one goose that keeps bullying the pigs. <laughs> which is I need to get it on video because it's actually really, really funny to watch like a 200 pound pig run away. <laughs> from, yeah, from a single goose. Like I only have one goose. Okay, one, um, which is something else I highly recommend. You know, you need to get um, something to protect your animals. So I invested in LGDs. That was a learning curve. And then raising them is a learning curve. If you've ever tried to raise um, an Anatolian of Great Pyrenees to protect poultry specifically is the hardest. Um but like I have a two-year-old, two-year-old Anatolian, she's still not trustworthy around all the livestock, but she will be, you know, you've got to have a huge investment in those, but they are worth their weight in gold. My dog defended my entire, entire property from two pit bulls, ended up in ICU. And that's when I got the second dog, obviously, but, um, you know, he did his job. He defended everything and he was he was in the vet for like two weeks over that deal. It was awful. 13 days. Yeah. Um, but anyone who raises LGDs knows they're worth their weight in gold. I highly recommend them. But I had to learn everything the hard way. I had to go to the library. I was going to the library all the time um, when I had time to do that. <laughs> Um, listening to podcasts all the time. I'm trying to network with people like you and find people on social media and compare and just join all these groups where you can ask questions. And that's really how you get through it is you got to find other people who are willing to share their knowledge with you. And um, that'll save you some of the heartache. But I mean, I've screwed up everything at least once. And I think that co that community or those people that you can find, it's the knowledge that they have and can share, but it's also the fact that, you know, they've been there and you're not alone and you didn't just like completely screw up everything because that's kind of what it feels like in a lot of those situations when you're surrounded by a bunch of dead animals that you had no way of anticipating that situation. And here you are. It's, it's, it's hard not to give up in that situation. So having those people 
that have been there or can tell you what they did is invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I'm one of those people. You are. (laughs) (laughs) You are. It's awesome. I love hearing your experience. And I think it's hard no matter what kind of farming you do. It's just the nature of the business. It's the nature of what it is. Um, Because it is. It's a life and death lesson a lot of times, unfortunately. But I love hearing your experience because... I, we've also had like larger scale farmers on this podcast. I've had um, a gal that contract grows chickens for Costco and it's the same story. Like it doesn't matter which side of that you're on. Obviously it looks very different and you have very different beliefs, but at, at the root of it, it's the same. It's trying to keep these animals alive and produce food for people. And it's just, it's so cool to hear like both ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and I, I have respect for, for all of it. Um, you can raise animals a hundred different ways. It's definitely, you know, to your opinion and it's your, I go and butcher stuff all the time. You know, as long as the animal was taken care of, that's really the only thing I'm judging you on. Um, the animal was taken care of property, we're good. Like if it wasn't taken care of properly, mm, I might judge you a little bit. I'm going to go, okay. And a lot of times if it's something they didn't know about, I can take that opportunity and we can chat. You know, that's also the beauty of backyard butchery is that I'm right there. You can physically see that carcass. So like if you did feed, like I've had some customers that fed, you know, a ton of corn because they didn't know better. Okay. And then I show them the carcass with, you know, three inches of fat that, you know, also when you start talking about efficiency and money, it's like, okay, I'm actually going to charge you for that hanging weight and I'm going to trim it all off. Yeah. You know, unless you're going to go make soap or um, you have, and most people will make a use out of it. But again, it's like a real low quality, you know, fat. Um, but I can respect all sides of it and I can use the opportunity with backyard butchery to show people, you know, maybe a better way or maybe a different way or, you know, a more cost efficient way. That's something I really see so, so much of is I go to farms and they're like, we're spending $30 a day on a bag of food. And I'm going, wait, 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 wait. That's not cost efficient ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're never, especially for like pigs and stuff. I'm going, pigs will eat anything. That's the whole point of having them. You know, I, my pigs now, nowadays, I, I mean, when I first started, I was the same way. I was buying all this feed. And then when I started running numbers, I'm like, that's when I stopped doing feed was because of the cost. It wasn't because I was like, oh, nutritionally speaking, even though that is part of it, but it was really just financially not making sense as a business to continue to raise something that was going through $30 a bag of feed every day. Um, Animals that will eat scraps, they will eat, you know, I was picking up spent grains from multiple breweries. I was picking up from the food bank trailer loads of produce. You know, every day I went to work bartending, I brought a trash can and the line cooks would fill it. The servers would fill it. And they were eating scraps from prime steakhouses. You know, they're getting like primo um, organic vegetables, because if it's not perfect, it doesn't go on the plate. Um, and I started finding cheaper ways because if you're not running your farm as a business, you're not doing it right. And I think that is also one of the number one mistakes 
I see when I go to farms, people get so discouraged over stuff like that. They're like, oh, well, we've got a thousand dollars in feed for, you know, 200 pounds of meat. Well, that doesn't make sense. Um, There are better ways, you know, there are ways to farm in conjunction with nature in ways that, you know, will actually save you money at the end of the day, you know, even up against a $5 Costco chicken. Yeah. And we get people to be trying the, all of the different ways, because if they're not, then how will we ever know that? We'll all just be still buying the same bag of feed at the store that's not doing, not performing the way we wanted to perform is losing us money at the end. And it will never know that if we don't try other options and pursue, you know, that research that you're doing, that you've been doing the hard way, that lots of folks who are kind of just trying to look for innovative ways to get into farming are doing and we i that's what i love most about talking to beginning farmers or new farmers too is that new farmers are so much more interested in trying different options instead of just like well this is the way grandpa did it i'm gonna do exactly what he did oh my gosh yes um truly the new generation of farmers are mostly first generation farmers Mm -hmm. um homesteaders, same way. Um, And a lot of that's out of necessity. You know, look at the economy. It's terrifying. People, people saw what happened during COVID and panicked. And uh, how many people pandemic purchased poultry, you know, for, for eggs specifically. And then, you know, going back onto the feed topic, it's like, didn't we all learn a lesson on feed with eggs recently? If you were anywhere on social media, there was this whole situation with chicken feed and um, tractor supply and Atwood's feed, not, I mean, like even my own person, I wouldn't believe it. I would not have believed it, I swear, but I was not getting eggs for months. Now for me, as a single person living alone, not a huge deal. Um, I'm not feeding those chickens, they're foraging. So it's not costing me any money necessarily, but um, I'm not eating eggs and I love eggs. I'm a huge fan of eggs. I'll put an egg on anything. So, you know, I don't know how many months went by with not even a single out of, you know, 20 birds. Hmm. So I immediately switched feeds. Um, and, and this is in the wintertime when I'm actually feeding feed. And all of a sudden... I had like 12 eggs the next day. I'm going, what is going on? Uh, You know, but like I said, they free, they're all foraging. You do get a little less eggs than if you were to like dump a bunch of feed on them. In the winter, I do supplement. Obviously, I'm not a jerk. I make sure everybody eats, Um, you know, but I mix up my own kind of rations, if you will. And that's another way to save a lot of money is mixing up your own feed or buying in bulk. I have a whole video on TikTok about it. Um, my band TikTok account, sorry. I'm, I'm restarting my new TikTok account. Um, hopefully I can get the old one reinstated. I'm going to fight it because uh, they took it down for animal abuse. <laughs> so there's your other, you know, challenging farming reality is that nobody wants to talk about this stuff. Nobody wants to see it. They want to pretend like their meat came from the grocery store and not from a, you know, cute fluffy cow um, that was living and breathing. They literally, they're taking down our flagging stuff that I put up that's carcasses. It's one step removed from steaks. I'm not showing like the bleeding. I'm not showing the gory stuff. And, um, and it really shouldn't be considered gory anyway. This is how we eat, you know, 
how we feed our families. Um, I get offended when it's called animal abuse. Truly, that's offensive to me. It's insulting um, because it's it's the exact opposite of that. Yes. Um, It gets me a little bit on a soapbox, but the number of people that have an increased interest in growing and raising their own food or being closer to their food is only going up. It went up hugely during COVID and it continues to go up. Um, And that is the very kind of content we're going to limit on social media. It's hard to not start thinking conspiracy theory related when you start seeing that kind of stuff. It's like, if, if this is what people want, if they want to be closer to their food, if they want to know more about their food, and that's the type of content we're going to block, then it's pretty hard to say, hmm, that, that's totally normal. There's no ul- ulterior motive there. Not a big deal. No, no. I had to refrain from making like a really angry video last night on my new if you will, TikTok um, over the whole thing, because that's exactly how I was feeling. I'm like, you know, this is, and, and TikTok has bots. I understand that's probably a lot of it, but there are people out there reporting your content um, that, you know, I get death threats from vegans. Um, it's actually, I don't know if you've seen this shirt. So it's actually why I kind of decided to be well, you don't know me that well, but I'm a little spicy. So I was like 0% vegan shirts. Uh, I'm going to start selling those because that's how I feel about it. You know, the, the irony is I get death threats from vegans. Like they're giving me to, I think that's hilarious. Right. Um, but you know, those are the people, the PETA people, they don't want to see it. They think it's gross. And part of me is like, if you don't want to see it, they can blur it. They can put a sensitivity mm-hmm. feature on there. You can choose to look at it or not. You can choose to follow me or not. Um, but what I have found is that people really do want to see that process. Yeah. Um, And not just online, like when I go to your farm, people have never even seen it before. That's the only reason that they have the feelings they have about it is because they've never experienced it. Well, even though I'm doing the work, they're still experiencing it. That animal, now they can go inside, they can shut the door and I can call them when I'm done. That's completely fine. Some people are that way and I respect their decision, but there's also people that will you know, they're standing right beside me when that kill shot happens. They are right there talking to me when I'm gutting that animal. They're seeing everything and they're interested. And even more so, children are interested. And when I tell you that whenever you show kids, and again, I don't, I would never force a kid to watch it. Okay. If they want to watch it, that's great. But if they don't, that's okay too. Um, But these kids that do want to watch it, I mean to tell you, they are so into it because it's fascinating. They're learning. Um, You know, that's probably been the most rewarding thing for me is like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I went one of my first clients out last year. I did a few pigs for. He's got like six kids, right? And one in particular was really, really into it. And, you know, and I'll teach him as I go. I'll show him the liver. And I was, I had shown him the liver and kind of explained how different um, colors of livers, you know, are healthy and unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And um, I went back to that farm this year, nine, 10 months passed, something like that. And 
same kid. I think he might be eight years old now. Okay. So he's really quite young. Um, comes out, tells me he wants to be a butcher when he grows up because of me, which I'm like holding back tears. Right. And I go to gut this pig and I pull the liver out. I don't say anything. He immediately recognizes it and he goes, Oh, it's purple. It's the right color. It means it's healthy. Right. And I'm looking at this kid like, oh my God, I just taught something. This kid retained, you know, and they're not scared of the process at all. And I've talked to other butchers who have kids and they're, you know, they tell me about how their kids have this really, really healthy understanding of death, you know, and a lot of farm kids do too. Um, But, you know, it's just, it's like, it's only scary. It's only, people only feel that way because they're ignorant to it because- (laughs) They're naive to it, I should say. That would be the proper word probably. But, you know, people often tell me like, oh, that really wasn't that bad. That wasn't that wasn't violent at all. I said, no, it's actually butcher day with me is usually very peaceful. It's very just I try to make, you know, everything as smooth as possible. And, um, you know, if you need to have a good cry, that's okay. Like, I'll let you do that. Like, I'm not not going to laugh at you. I'm not going to make you feel bad about it. It makes me happy to know that an animal was loved, you know, before we process it. And, you know, we're going to put something that you really, really cared about and took care of. We're going to put that in your freezer instead of something that was not raised with any kind of love or consideration. So I think um, that has been that has been so cool for me. And I started teaching some FFA classes as well. And I do, I do classes, but I'll do the FFAs and the 4-H classes completely free. Um, if they provide me an animal, they chart, they do the regular butcher fees for that. I'll teach their whole chapter. I had like 75 kids one day going in and out of my trailer, making sausage, you know, packaging pork chops and the boys wanted to skin them, you know, and I had to teach them how to skin something other than a deer. (laughs) It was really cool because, um, people aren't, they're just not seeing it. Mm -hmm. They just don't, they don't know what they don't know. And I'm out here putting that content out and people really do want to see it. So why are they taking it down? Yeah. Why is um, why is butchering considered animal abuse? I'm a fully legal, licensed, inspected butcher shop. And I think it's worth bringing up from the sustainability aspect as well, which that's such a big focus now. Of we all have to be sustainable, which I think is great. But if you want to talk about real sustainability, you are going to a farm to harvest an animal that otherwise would not be harvestable. Like what's the ulterior, the other option for that animal? It's not great. It's very wasteful. Uh, Extremely wasteful, you know, and that's, and there's a lot of pressure on me being the only mobile one. Like if I can't get them in, nobody, nobody else can. Yeah. That sucks. Um, you know, and it's a crappy situation for farmers when an animal goes down, but it inevitably will happen. Like if you run cattle, one's going to break a leg, yeah. uh, you might have a labor issue or whatever. So really financially speaking, like if you can, if you can at least save some of that meat, you can, um, it, it'll soften, it'll soften the blow just a mm-hmm. little bit. And, and then you're not just completely wasting an animal. You know, that's a big thing for me. I'm not killing anything. 
preferably. Um, that's really why I get so upset about the dogs that I had to, to take care of. But, um, the main thing is like, if I'm going to kill something, I want to know that we honored that life, that we used as much of it as possible. And, um, we know that we're not being wasteful of that animal. And, you know, when you have to just put a bullet in them, and drag them out to a field, it's a pretty crappy feeling, especially when you're looking at like a 1,500 pound animal, 500 pounds of meat, potentially like that feeds a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of hungry people. Yeah. And you've already invested a lot of resources in that animal as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think um, there's a lot more we could talk about today because there's just so much um, about what you do that is fascinating and there's not that many people who do it. Um, So I'm so happy that you are making this an option to people in your area. And I hope that you do figure something out to do with the trailers so that you can help other people to um, be able to offer that as well. Of course, at your benefit, because you spent a lot of hard time and money on that. doing it yourself. So um, I want to share with people where they can find out more about you, where they can get the 0% vegan shirts, because those are cool. And (laughs) tell people how they can follow up with you if they enjoyed something they heard today. Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, um, and I still have my old account up on TikTok currently at Backyard Butchery, just seamless. Um, And then I started a new TikTok. It's Backyard.Butchery. Um, and then I have a website, www.backyardbutchery.com. The shirts are on sale there. They're $19.99. They're gray for people uh, listening. And they have just black lettering. It says 0% vegan on the side. It has my logo, Backyard Butchery. There's also some hats up there and they're being fulfilled by order. So you can choose colors and things like that. Um, but yeah, all of my information is on that website. If you need to contact me directly for, for anything, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Tiffany. I had a really good time listening. If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or join the conversation on social media. Do you have a topic you would like to discuss or know someone with a story to share? Apply to be a guest on the podcast at farmingonpurpose.com. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, on your favorite social media platforms for more content by searching for Farming on Purpose. And remember, if you look around your table and aren't inspired by the people there, it's time to find a new seat.